0: hope you got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to return to the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And I say return to the Sermon on the Mount because we preached through this text many, many years ago. And a while back, somebody asked me, would I consider uh, doing the Sermon on the Mount? And, and, uh, and it's so fraught with, with wisdom, and it's so fraught with... Uh, with information and with challenges for us that I felt like that was a good idea. So we're going to go back to the Sermon on the Mount after many years of, of actually studying this passage. I debated over how much you know, introductory material to give us as we, as we jump into the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, but there is some that I want to talk about that I think will help us understand this, this passage in Matthew's Gospel. You know, just for information, I know we have some guests. I want to tell you something about what we believe as a church. We believe that God has inspired his Bible. We believe the Bible by faith. We, we actually affirm this. We recognize that our conviction that the Bible is true is, is by faith. Now, that doesn't diminish it, I don't believe, because the Bible says without faith we can't please God, and faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. Uh, but it's by faith that we believe the Bible, and because we believe the Bible, we, we believe what it says is true. So some of these things I'm going to tell you, I'm just going to make as a statement of fact because the Bible says them the author of this gospel the author of this this good news there's four books we call good news books in the in the new testament Matthew Mark Luke and John and this is one of them and Matthew is the author Matthew was one of Jesus disciples and he was the tax collector he was the one if you remember that You know, everybody would have thought this guy's far from God, but God was working in his heart. And when Jesus said to him, Matthew, come and follow me, he did. And not only did Matthew follow him, but he got all his friends together. And Jesus came and had a party with them and and basically was telling them about, uh, about himself. Most scholars agree that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. He's writing primarily to people who are of his kinsmen, uh, descendants of Abraham. And so Matthew's goal, Matthew's heart in this gospel was to convince those fellow Jews that Jesus was the king, that Jesus was the Messiah that they had been looking for. He wrote this book, before A.D. 70. A.D. 70 is when Jerusalem will fall. And he wrote the book before A.D. 70. Most, most would say that he probably wrote somewhere between 60 and 65 A.D. So he's, written, he's writing about 30 years after Christ has died, and he's writing to these Jews to convince them that Jesus is the Lord. Now, I think there's maybe some other purposes as well. He's writing this gospel to help, to help his fellow believers, you know, by reminding them of some of the things that Jesus said now here's where I want to give you some introductory material that I think would really be helpful to you, and that is to understand some of the organization of the book of, of Matthew. Now Matthew really is divided into five major discourses, five teaching sections. And those teaching sections, if you're taking notes, you wanted want to write them down, are the Sermon on the Mount, five through seven, or, or parts of eight even. The Charge to the Twelve, or we could talk about Missionary missionary. Information, uh, chapter 9, 35, 11 to 1. These are teaching discourses by Jesus. The third one would be parables, chapter 13. Uh, chapter 18 is about relationships. And then in uh, 24 and 25, we have the Olivet... Discourse. Now, in, in interspersed between these five major teaching sections in the Gospel of Matthew, there are narrative stories. There are stories where, you know, about what Jesus did and all. And it's bookend, the Gospel of Matthew is bookend with narrative about Jesus' birth and, and, then, and then closing with narratives about Jesus' death and, uh, and resurrection. Now, one of the things that I want you to understand that I think most scholars agree with, and that is that that Matthew takes some liberties with how he organizes his book. And what I mean by that is that... Say chapter, let's take chapter 13, where it talks about the parables in Matthew. There are a string of parable after parable after parable after parable. If you read it, it sounds almost like Jesus delivered all those parables at one time. Most everybody believes that that's not what Matthew has done. Matthew is not chronicling what Jesus did at one sitting, but rather he's clustering together a lot of the teachings of Jesus into these five different teaching discourses. Now, now for us, that kind of sounds like disingenuous. We're Westerners, we're very linear, we're very, you know, everything has to be exactly right or it's not true, but we need to, we need to put ourselves back into, into Matthew's times and how they wrote. So everything that Matthew wrote was true, but it wasn't necessarily, it's not necessarily as Matthew has organized it in his letter. What I mean by that is the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is much longer than its counterpart in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 6. It's very it's somewhat different as well, uh, which has led people to say, well, there's these are two different sermons. There's some there's some different nuances there, and these are two different sermons. You know, I think it's kind of divided. I think more scholars would say, no, it's the same sermon, and it's just, it's just recorded for us differently. And they would say that Matthew most likely is adding a lot of teachings of Jesus to the Sermon on the Mount that weren't necessarily delivered in that particular setting, all right? Now, that may or may not be true, but I, but I want you to know that, and that's one of the reasons why I think the Sermon on the Mount is so long in Matthew and not so long in Luke, is because Matthew is just bringing together a lot of material, where he's trying to challenge God's people in what it means to be a member of God's, of God's kingdom, of Jesus' kingdom. Now, one of the big themes in Matthew's gospel is the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. In fact, Matthew is the only one who refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. Everybody else always refers to it as the kingdom of God. So if you go to Mark, if you go to Luke, it's the kingdom of God. In Matthew, it's the kingdom of heaven. Yet everybody, if you compare the, the parables and you compare what was—I mean, compare the gospels—then it's obvious that Matthew and Mark and them are using these terms interchangeably: the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And, and one of the things that Matthew wants to do is he wants to talk about the kingdom of God from two vantage points: one, the king, and two, his realm. He wants to talk about both of those things in his his gospel. As a matter of fact, he spends the first three or four chapters in his gospel convincing the Jews that Jesus is king. He's trying to convince them that Jesus is this new Messiah, not the Messiah, the Messiah that they've been looking for. He's the one that they've been waiting for. So he spends a lot of time at the beginning of his gospel convincing them of of that. And so when John the Baptist comes on the scene, John the Baptist comes saying, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus comes, he says the kingdom of God is here. One commentator says a new age had dawned and the rule of God had broken into history. And so what Matthew is trying to communicate, and this is important for us to get, what Matthew is trying to communicate to us is that the king has come and his kingdom has begun. His reign has begun. Now, the reign of King Jesus is not like everybody envisioned it. Everybody thought the reign of Jesus was going to be an earthly reign where he reigns over all the earth. And indeed, he's going to be that. And it's going to be that. But, but what was a mystery that people didn't understand was that the kingdom of God began when Jesus came. And he was inviting everyone as king to enter into his kingdom so that we can be a part of his kingdom now. And his kingdom is actually not an earthly kingdom. Jesus hasn't ruled over any piece of earth as king up to this point, although he is God, so therefore, in a sense, he rules over it all. But, but he's not taken dominion over this world in the sense of an earthly king ruling over all the earth. And yet that's coming. But nonetheless, his kingdom has come. His kingdom is now. Jesus is reigning, but his kingdom is not land. His kingdom is the realm of our hearts. The kingdom that Jesus rules over is our hearts, or our hearts. I'm not sure which is good English. Okay, It's our hearts. He is reigning over our hearts. And so in the Bible, one of the things that we learn is that we are a new nation, A holy people right because he's ruling in our hearts and and we are the temple of god made up each one of us right so jesus kingdom is not like everybody imagined it is still waiting its consummation it's still waiting its its final fulfillment when jesus walks onto the planet and basically takes over everything and rules on the earth over all the earth but right now the kingdom of god has still come the kingdom of god is here The kingdom of God is in our hearts. He is king. We are his realm. Now I say all that because when we get to this Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is trying to articulate to his followers then and to us today is that this is how you ought to be as one of my subjects. If you have submitted yourself to me as king then this is what ought to be true of you. This ought to be your life. This is what you ought to represent to the world around us. And so, so Jesus or Matthew, I'm probably going to get it confused, but, but Jesus is, is trying to paint a picture of what it's like to be a part of his realm. What it's like to be a member of his kingdom. And, uh, and so we're going to go through the verses that we read just a moment ago, which are commonly called the Beatitudes, all right? And they're basically describing qualities of the kingdom citizen. But here's one thing I don't want you to, I don't want you to do this. I don't want you to say, well, here's, here's a group in the kingdom, and here's another group in the kingdom. We've got the poor in spirit, and we've got the merciful, and we've got those who mourn. That's not what he's doing. This, these are how all of us are to be. These groupings, all of us are to be all of these things as members of His kingdom. Everybody with me? So what we're going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to walk through, you know, a lot of, a lot of pastors take each one of these and spend a whole lesson on each one. I don't know that I'm good enough to do that. And so I'm just going to take them all at one time. And we're just going to talk a little bit about each one, right? And I'm going to challenge us to be these kind of men and women who are part of God's kingdom today. All right. Chapter five, verse one again. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them, saying, there's eight of these blessings, and, uh, and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, and we need to start first with talking about that word blessed, it's, it's the Greek word for happy, Now you remember this, we've, we've taught this a lot recently, and you need to get this, words have a range of meaning. They don't, they don't just mean one thing. Words can mean different things depending on the context. If, if I say I'm, I'm, I'm standing over here, in context, you would say I'm standing here. But if I say I'm taking my stand on this issue of abortion, I'm standing for life, you're not thinking of me literally standing. You're thinking of me by conviction holding to this position. So the word stand there has two different meanings. You follow me? Same word, two, two different meanings. Well, in the same way, the word blessed has a range of meaning, and and its primary meaning is happy. And so your translation, especially if you have a very dynamic translation, they they probably have said happy is the person who, you know. The problem with that is one of the blessings that Jesus mentions is blessed are those who mourn. And so it's kind of happy is the person who mourns. You know, when we're mourning, hardly ever are we happy, and so probably a better, a better way of looking at the word blessing here would be having God's favor. Having God's favor. You remember the parable where Jesus um, tells a story about the, the three stewards that he leaves in charge of something, and then at the very end, two of them come back, they've been faithful to do what he says, and, and God the Father or the Master says, well done, good and faithful servant, I think that's what Jesus is trying to say by blessed. He's basically saying, well done. You know, well done for this person. You know, the, the joy, that sense, of, that sense of peace is ours. I think that's kind of the, what he's trying to connote with blessed, more more than happy. But he begins and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Now, the word poor there is, is the, there's, there's several words for poverty. And this is the this this word is for the most the most poor abject poverty where you have absolutely nothing where you're beggarly and he basically says happy blessed you know having God's favor are the beggarly now notice this that Matthew says in spirit Now Luke's gospel, when Luke's recording this, he simply says, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of of God. uh, Luke seems to be focused, in, in the text, seems to be focused more on the material world, whereas Matthew nuances these statements of Jesus and says, no, they're not so much about the material world, they're really about your heart. And so he says, blessed, or having God's favor, is the person who is beggarly in spirit. What does that mean, to be beggarly in spirit or to have absolutely nothing? Well, it's it's what God wants us to know about ourselves. And that is that spiritually, I'm bankrupt. Spiritually, I don't have anything that I can offer God. And the person who recognizes his spiritual poverty is blessed. Now... This is an area where I I think, you know, we would all say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm spiritually poor, I'm spiritually poor. But I don't know that we really believe it. We really think that we have something to offer to God. And what Jesus is trying to say, until you get to the place where you recognize that you don't have anything to offer God, then, then you're really not living the way I want you to live as my people. Theologically, we're talking about the doctrine of the depravity of men. All right. And, uh, and what that simply means is that man has nothing to offer God that will equal, earn or merit God's righteousness. Now, I want to read you from uh, Romans chapter three, verse nine and following. It says, what then? This is Paul. He's writing to the Jewish people. And he says, are we Jews any better off than than the Gentiles? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness wretchedness are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Now let me, let me just say that in the vernacular, what, what Paul is saying. He's basically saying this, none of us, none of us have anything that we can offer to God. There's none of us in this room who, who merits or mustard's enough to be able to bargain with God in some way. There is no spiritual capital in my life. You don't have any. As much as you might think you have some because you try to live morally or because you participate in religious traditions, like you go to church or whatever, you know, you might think somehow or another those are capital you can bargain with God, but they're not. Paul says none of us, none of us is righteous. None of us, none of us lives up to it, right? Now, here's why spiritual poverty or beggarliness in our spirit is a blessing to us. Let me continue reading in what Paul says to the Romans. He says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, here's what Paul says, and here's what Matthew, or here's what Jesus is saying in Matthew. Blessed are the people who are beggarly poor spiritually, because those people recognize they have nothing to barter with God. You know, if you're a beggar and you have absolutely nothing, you are dependent on somebody giving you something. It's the same idea. As long as you think you are something that you can go to God and you've got this to say, God, here's this, then you're never going to beg. You're going to be trying to bargaining with God. Blessed are those who are beggarly in spirit because they won't barter with God. They will look to God. To provide for them. And that's what Paul says in Romans 3. God did it for us. It's what we sang just a moment ago through through the four songs. It's the gospel. And God created us, loves us. My sin, my sin separates me from God. It makes me beggarly before God. Christ died for me. Did you notice this in the text from Paul in Romans? For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. You see, our good works and our, our spiritual things, they, 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 they're not bargaining chips with God. Instead, it's just the opposite. God's law is to tell me I'm beggarly, that I need help, that I need someone to give to me. And so the Apostle Paul and, and Jesus here is telling us, hey, when you are spiritually destitute and you are spiritually beggarly, you are blessed because the kingdom of God will be yours. Why will the kingdom of God be yours? Why will the kingdom of heaven be yours? Because you will recognize your need and you will come to the king. As long as you think you are something spiritually, you'll never trust in Christ. You won't. You'll play religious games, you'll do church stuff, etc. But until you recognize your need of Christ, your total bankruptcy, you will not come to him. Number two, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, all of these Beatitudes actually find their root in the Old Testament. Did y'all know that? You know, how is it possible for mourners to be blessed and comforted? Well, Jesus is really grabbing this from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, where God promises that the Messiah, the King, will heal the brokenhearted and to comfort all who mourn. That's what the, the new King is going to do. And that's what Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. You know, all of us mourn. All of us. He doesn't give us any context for the mourning. Did you notice that? He doesn't give us any context for it. He doesn't say why they're mourning, right? But we, just like people who don't know Jesus, we mourn. We grieve. There are things that hurt us. You know, we, we lose loved ones. We, we suffer uh, illnesses. We have people who turn against us. We grieve. But... We have this promise. When you mourn and when you grieve, you're not to grieve as those who have no hope. Why? Because you will be comforted. You will be comforted. God will comfort you. The same word there for comfort is the word from which we get the Holy Spirit, the parakaleos, the one who's called alongside. Jesus is going to comfort us. So listen, if you're suffering today, listen to what I'm saying to you. Jesus is going to comfort us. Now, he'll comfort us in this life, I believe, but boy, there is such comfort coming in the future. Number three, blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. You know, the word here for for gentle is translated a number of ways. Your translation may say meek. It may say humble. The word is prouse, And so Jesus describes himself in chapter 11, verse 29. He says, he is prouse and lowly in heart. Matthew describes Jesus as a king, prowls and mounted on a donkey. Jesus models prowls, the Bible says, in his trial where he refuses to defend himself, poised and in control, yet refusing to make any claims to defend himself. The word is often used of an animal that's tame, who's been brought under control. Here's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are the prowls, Blessed are the the kind, the humble, those who have themselves under the control of the Spirit. Blessed is that person, you know? And he can easily, that person can easily submit himself to others. He's not filled with pride or selfishness. Now, too many of us men and women who follow Jesus are not like that. It's our way or it's no way. We have to have it our way. That's not how Jesus was. In Psalm 37, it says, the humble will inherit the land. In verse 9 of chapter 37 of the Psalms, it says, for evildoers will be destroyed, but those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. We will inherit the earth. That's what Jesus says back in the text. He says, let me read it. He says, blessed are the gentles for they sh- gentle for they shall inherit the earth. The promise of God is that when you and I are, are gentle and meek and we allow ourselves to be brought under the control of the Holy Spirit, the earth is going to be ours. Now, I've been saying this a lot lately and it's meant a lot to me. So I hope it means a lot to you. But the promise of God is not an ethereal heaven. The promise of God is not disembodied spirits in heaven someday. The promise of God is a home, tangible material on this earth. And you say, well, Jimmy, you're belittling. I'm I'm not belittling anything. That's the promise of God. That's what God promises, that this earth will be remade. Whether he makes a new one or whether he refurbishes this one, it doesn't matter. But the home that awaits us is a tangible heaven on earth where we will dwell with him forever. And that's what Jesus says. He says, blessed are you when you are kind and you are humble and you are under control and you don't have to have your way. Blessed are you when you are like me because you will inherit the earth. This is gonna be your home. This is gonna be where you will be with me forever. Number four, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, Matthew adds for righteousness there, for they shall be filled. Now, I think the hunger and thirst part, we don't get it because if I'm hungry, what do I do? What do you do? You go to your fridge, right? Or you go to your pantry and you you snack and you eat, right? If you're thirsty, you go over to the tab and you turn the water spigot on and you drink. I, I think this loses some of the import, but for the people that were listening to him that day, The desperation of not having food and the desperation of not having drink, they would have understood that. And so Jesus said, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst. And he adds this, or he says, for righteousness. In other words, when we're desperate for the righteousness of God in our lives, and the promise is, you know, blessed are you because you will be satisfied. Now I think about this, and, you know, Mike, Mike did such a good job in the singing of bringing this out. But the gospel, the good news is the good news is that God gives us righteousness by faith. He gives us righteousness not because I earn it, not because I'm good, not because I'm moral. He gives me righteousness because Christ died for me and I'm willing to put my faith in him. Okay? That, the Bible calls that, we call that in, in theology, positional righteousness. It's how you got saved. Every one of you who is a follower of Christ, you were given your righteousness. You didn't earn it. Remember, you're spiritually bankrupt. You have absolutely nothing to bargain with. So by faith, God gives it to you and He declares you to be just like Jesus. And now you're righteous. But that's the positional side. The practical side is me living out every day. You know what? And and we need to talk about that because so many people in generations gone by have focused on the practical side of righteousness, that that somehow or another, I'm right with God because I'm practically trying to live righteously. No, you're right with God because of faith and because of the position that God gives you. But having been righteous, Jesus says this of, of those of us in his realm. He says, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst He's not talking about positional righteousness, he's talking about practical righteousness. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness in your life, for you will be satisfied. You know, and I love this, you know, because the promises that, you know, I don't know about you, but do you ever weep over your sin? Do you ever feel just absolutely broken? Because as much as you try, as much as you want to live practically what Jesus declares you to be, you still fall, you still fail. And I don't know about you, but when I do, I ache. And I do know about you because I've watched some of you men cry over your sin. And so I know, just like me, your sin, it hurts you because you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Here's the promise of Jesus. You will be satisfied. God's going to take away your sin and you will sin. You will be raised to sin no more. You know, as I was working on this, the hymn came to mind, There is a Fountain, and the third verse goes like this. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more, be saved to sin no more till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. That's the promise of the Sermon on the Mount. That's the reason why when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you are blessed. Because one of these days, God is going to satisfy that hunger and thirst for practical righteousness, and you will be all of that. Number five, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, um, mercy in this case is sympathy that doesn't stop with sympathy, but acts and and moves on and does something about the hurt that they see. Jesus pronounces the person who feels another person's pain and takes action to relieve it. He says, "You are blessed when you show mercy, because you will be shown mercy." Now, I need to tell you something here that I, I don't know really know how to. I don't know how to address this, but it almost seems like mercy receiving is dependent on mercy giving. Y'all not see that? It seems to be in the text over and over and over again. In the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, he said, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Twice he quotes Hosea chapter 6, which says God calls for mercy rather than sacrifice. In chapter 18, listen to this. There's a parable told of an unforgiving servant who has shown great mercy by the king. And then when he turns around and doesn't show mercy to someone who just owes him a little... The mercy of the king is revoked. Now, we all, you know, that just kind of goes against what most of us probably believe. God's not going to revoke his mercy, but that's the story that Jesus told. The king revokes his mercy. He condemns the scribes and the Pharisees for scrupulous attention to tithing, but yet neglecting the weightier things of the law, which are justice and mercy and faith. It is true. That the merciful, if it's true that the merciful receive mercy, then it would also be true that those who have received mercy would be more likely to show mercy, right? So mercy seems to have this sort of cyclical, this sort of cyclical thing. To receive mercy is to show mercy, to show mercy is to receive mercy, and and it kind of goes on in a cycle like that, right? So the question would be, where does the cycle start, Where does the cycle start? Well, it started with God. God showed you mercy. You see, the reason why Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. God started this mercy thing. He started this mercy thing by showing us mercy, all right? And now he expects you and me to show mercy to others. The Bible says that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. God showed me mercy. I remember a few years ago, one of my favorite songs, and some of you will remember this. It was called, Mercy Came Running. Listen to the lyrics. Once there was a holy place, evidence of God's embrace, and I can almost see mercy's face pressed against the veil. Looking down with longing eyes, mercy must have realized that once his blood was sacrificed, freedom would prevail. And as the sky grew dark and the earth began to shake, with justice no longer in the way, mercy came running like a prisoner set free. Past all my failures to the point of my need, when the sin that I carried was all I could see, when I could not reach mercy, mercy came running to me. God started the whole mercy cycle, everybody. He showed us mercy. And then he says this, he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You see, when we receive mercy, we can't help but show others mercy. Number six, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus is adapting Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and pure hearts. The word for purity there has, has a double meaning. Just, it has, a, has a, a, well, it's not a double meaning, but it has more than one meaning. One meaning would be clean and not Dirty. Jesus warns us. He says, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual sins, thefts, false testimony, and, and blasphemies. The pure of heart, the dirt's not there. Okay, But then he also says this about the pure of heart. The pure of heart would be an unadulterated heart, an alloy, not mixed with foreign substances. So here, here, listen to, listen to what God, listen to what Jesus is saying. Blessed are the pure in heart. He's saying, blessed are those, you know, whose heart's not filled with all kinds of sinful stuff. But blessed is the heart who is totally devoted to the Lord. That's not, that, that, that's not mixed, that's not divided. Remember, Jesus constantly calls us to a fully devoted heart to Jesus, a fully devoted heart to God. He said, as a matter of fact, he said, you can't serve. You can't have a divided heart. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve money. You can't serve material things and God. You've got to make a choice. Jesus said this. He said, blessed is the man and woman, and this is how we ought to be, who has not a divided heart or an unclean, impure heart, but whose heart belongs to the Lord and whose heart is not encumbered with sin. I found this really neat quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, We are afraid that heaven is a bribe and that if we make it our goal, we shall no longer be disinterested. It is not so. Heaven offers nothing that a mercenary soul can desire. You know, uh, we're not going to choose God for mercenary reasons. It is safe to tell the pure in heart that they shall see God for only the pure in heart want to see God that's what Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We're going to see God, everybody. We're going to see him not in a sense as, okay, there he is as judge over my life. We're going to see him as father. We're going to see him as father. What a big difference, seeing God as father versus seeing God as judge. Number seven, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. In Jesus' kingdom, men and women are called to live at peace with one another. In Romans chapter 12, verse 8, it says, As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So those of you that follow Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers. That's you and me. That's, that's who we are as God's people. We are peacemakers as much as it depends on us. It doesn't always depend on us. We can't always make peace with everyone, but you know, as much as it depends on us. Now, here's two things or three things that I think you should do to make peace with others. Number one, live selflessly. The reason why you struggle with others is most likely selfishness on your part or theirs. As much as it depends on you, you live selflessly. Number two, be quick and willing and ready to forgive. Choose ahead of time. Decide, I will forgive now. You know, I tell you, this will change your life. If you will just decide today, I don't care what anybody does to me in the future. I'm not, I'm not going to be their judge. I'm not going to hold them accountable. I'm going to let God hold them accountable. I'm going to forgive them. If you make a choice today to forgive, then you know when somebody offends you and hurts you, it's so much easier for you to forgive them. blessed blessed are the peacemakers that's who we are remember that Jesus pronounces blessings not, not not for avoiding confrontation but for making peace let me say this this is kind of the other side of that that you can sometimes peace comes on the other side of confrontation a great illustration of this would be Neville Chamber- Chamberlain, who was the prime minister in, in England, and he tried to appease Hitler, and it didn't work. It did just the opposite, okay? I know that's a big example. That probably won't apply to most of us, but on a small scale, on a small scale, sometimes peace comes at the other side of confrontation. It comes, it comes when your wife says, hey, we need to sit on the porch and talk, right? It comes when we're willing to confront. That's where peace comes from, all right? And here's what it says. We shall be called the children of God, the sons of God. When we're a peacemaker, we're just like God because he was a peacemaker. He he sought to make peace between us and him. He took the initiative. He was the peacemaker. That's what you and I are called to be, peacemakers. John promises, beloved, now we are children of God and it's not yet revealed what we will be, but we know when he is revealed, we will be like him. And finally, the last thing. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me read all the last three verses. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. No, early Christians were persecuted for all kinds of reasons. Saul, as a Jew, persecuted them because they felt like they were, you know, rejecting the first covenant, rejecting the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they persecuted them. The Romans persecuted them because, you know, they felt like they were engaging in all kinds of things like cannibalism because Jesus said, drink my blood and eat my flesh, right? So they were accused of all kinds of things. And... Um, so the, the early Christians were persecuted an awful lot, as we know. Um, and so Jesus is telling his disciples early on, when you're part of my kingdom, you're blessed when people persecute you. You're blessed when that happens to you. You're blessed when people persecute you for my sake. He actually points to them in verse 11. He says, blessed are you. He points to the people listening to him. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake because, he says, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. He's actually already said this before. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. To you belongs my kingdom when you are persecuted for my name's sake. Now, let me say this. Every time I talk about persecution, I can't help but think of a friend of mine who wrote a book. Who basically says we're, we're not we're not persecuted as Christians in America? You know, my friend is really right. I mean, we're not persecuted, folks. We're not. Uh, people might not like us. It may cost us to follow Christ a little bit, but we're, we're really not persecuted as as Christians in America. But I'll tell you something: that's not true in much of the world. Much of the world, even to this day, Christians can't. They can't come out. They can't. They can't. They can't meet together. They they would they would suffer death. the loss of everything they have if people knew they were followers of Christ. There are people around the world who are persecuted for Jesus' sake. In this letter that Matthew wrote, this this gospel that Matthew wrote, it's, it's an important thing to them because it reminds them, hey, the kingdom of heaven belongs to me though I'm being persecuted. I belong to the Lord. In fact, Jesus promises more. Notice he says, rejoice and be glad. Two, two words there. The second word is, is a stronger than the first word. The, the second word means to leap for joy. So basically he's saying, be glad and leap for joy when they insult you. When they, when they and again, we, we do get insulted as Christians in America sometimes. You know, rejoice when all that happens because the kingdom of yours, the kingdom of God belongs to you. And then he says in verse 12, and he says, and, and great Great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. And the word he uses there is like wages or compensation. Basically, Jesus was saying, God is going to reward you when you live for me in such a way that even if people persecute you, if you live for me, you know, you will be greatly rewarded. You'll be greatly rewarded. Let me end. I want to distill all of this down. My time is gone. I want to distill it down. I'm going to read you. I put it actually on the slides behind me so you can follow along. But I want to try to, 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 to distill everything I've said down to a couple of paragraphs. We are men and women as people of God. We are men and women, followers of Jesus, who are humble and merciful and peacemakers because Because we have recognized our deep spiritual need of forgiveness and of the mercy of God. That's what Jesus was saying to his followers. I'm going to read it again. We, as the followers of Jesus, this is who we are. We are humble and we are merciful. We are peacemakers because we recognize our own deep spiritual need of both forgiveness and the mercy of God. We are men and women who are pure of heart and who long to be holy in our daily lives. We seek to live out the righteousness that Jesus has given us. That's who we are as as, as members of the realm of his kingdom. That's who we are. We're pure in heart. We've We've been declared pure by grace through faith. But this is who we are. We are men and women who are pure of heart. We long to be holy in our daily lives. We seek to live out the righteousness that Jesus has given us. We are men and women who recognize that being this way will put us at odds with the world. And not everyone will, be, will like us. In fact, some will seek to harm us or even kill us. That is who we are. And if I could just pause there for a moment and and just ask you introspectively, is that who you are as a follower of the Lord Jesus? Are you humble? Are you a peacemaker? Are you merciful? Do you recognize your own deep spiritual needs so much so that you are willing to offer to others mercy and forgiveness because you've been recipients of that? You know, if that, just being honest, just between you and God, nobody's seeing your heart but you and God, but if that's not you, this is a point where we need to respond to God. This is a point where I need to say, Lord, that's not me. I'm not very merciful, Lord. I'm not a peacemaker. In fact, I always want my way, you know, and and, and I don't, you know, and again, I say this, I say this because it's real easy for us to miss it, our deep spiritual need. It's really easy for us to begin to think, well, I go to church, and I try to live morally, and, I, and, and we end up forgetting that Christ is all I have. Christ is all I have. I do not have anything I can bargain with God, ever. Are you pure of heart? Here's, here's, here's one for us, here's one for all of us. Do you long to be holy in your daily living. Are you, are you fighting for holiness? Are you striving for holiness? And yes, understand that the gospel is that God gives you holiness by faith. That's the gospel. But the other side of this, of that coin, is that I'm pure of heart. I want to live holy. I want to fight against sin. Men, I want to fight against pornography. I don't want that to be a part of my life. Materialism and greed... In all the things that, that tend to fight against us as Western Americans, you know, that's not who I am. And I want to fight against those things. Do you fight against those things, men? Or do you give in to those women? Do you fight against those things? That's who we are. And Jesus concludes each of these things by saying this to us. To us belong his kingdom." And consequently, we will inherit the earth. We will be the ones who through immortality will live on earth with our King forever and ever. Boy, I can't when I say those things and I think about the people that would scoff at us uh, because of what of what the Bible holds to be true, but nonetheless, it is my great conviction, it is my great hope that I, through immortality given to me by Jesus, will inherit the earth with all of you that love Jesus, with all of us that know Him. The earth is ours. Immortality is ours. Life with Him forever and ever is ours. With no more sin and no more struggling and no more fighting, no more impurity, we will be the ones through we will live on earth with our King forever and ever. We will see God. For we will live with him forever and ever. We will see him. You're not going to see him as the judge who condemns you to hell. You're going to see him as the God who loves you and delivered himself up for you, that you might have eternal life. We will be called the sons and the daughters of God. And in this kingdom, we shall be satisfied. We shall be comforted. And we shall receive mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Let's bow our heads. I want to offer two invitations this morning for us to respond. And the first one is this. I I invite you to become a part of God's kingdom. I invite you this morning. Jesus came and offered himself as king and he's offering himself to you as your king this morning, right here and right now, right in your seat where you are. You can say, "I, I need Jesus. I want him to be my king. Jesus, I look to you and I invite you to be my king. I receive you as my king. I give you that opportunity right now. Jesus is, is just, he's offering this invitation to you as he offered it over and over and over again to his followers. Will you receive me? Will you follow me? Right there in your chair, in your seat. You just talk to God and you, if you're willing, receive Jesus as your king. Trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. Re- receive receive the, the grace of God that will just cover all your sins even right now. Believe the gospel right now. And then for the rest of us that are already followers of Jesus, we're already in his kingdom. He's our king. Let me ask you just to take a moment of self-examination and say, Lord, or let me just ask you, where is the Holy Spirit convicting you? Where are you not living as one of his realm? Where is your life not, not being as Jesus described us to be? And right where you sit, just, you know, you repent right there. Tell the Lord, you know, tell the Lord, Lord, I repent, I'm wrong. A- ask God to work by his spirit in you to change you, that you might be a living example of the realm that Jesus rules over, which is the realm of our hearts. God, hear every prayer as it rises before you. And uh, Lord, just answer, answer by your spirit. Lord, work in our lives that we might live as kingdom Citizens, Lord, like you want us to live. Lord, I pray for my friends here. If anyone here today needs to receive you, Lord, just work in their hearts that they might repent and choose to follow Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please.